Thanks again for tuning to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio in our continuation episode from our Hashtag Theory Thursday episode. We continue on with capitalist realism as we go through chapters 3, Capitalism and Real, and 4, Reflex Impotence, Immobilization and Liberal Communism. As these episodes do get on and we dive deep into the theory, they always seem to get more and more interesting, so we hope you get the same effect. It's not that some people are just too dumb to understand it. I mean, that's complete nonsense, right? It can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And, you know, we had some placards, one of them which said the pre-factual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand, it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of US and British imperialism in the Middle East. And it would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something today where I am and I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born it's just like horrifying it's not it's not British culture it's just the world's culture they love stories they love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this I think it's a distraction from the class struggle to be honest I'm just gonna give a big shout out to our patrons Jake Joe Rev Left Jim John Gregory Combat Pingu Jessica and Orman who are helping fund the revolution. Massive thank you, comrades. Okay, so our main feed will consist mostly of interviews and then like two or three episodes of theory just to show people what we're working on on Patreon. So just go over to Patreon. You don't have to pay to hear the Theory Thursday episodes, but if you do become a Patreon member, you'll get the episodes as soon as edited as a little bonus and an extra thank you i'm sure ryan agrees with me here we're doing these theory episodes not because it's great to do theory don't just want to show off and say yeah we we read theory we're doing this so that hopefully people can pick up the theory pick up the different perspectives of theorists so that people can really interpret what they're saying and then relay it back to your own people in your community in your workplace your gangsters on the corner all that shit you gotta tell the people out here because we need a revolution we need clear ideas of what the world is like and what the world should be yeah so we're doing this theory to really help everybody take that on board spread the revolution spread class consciousness and then you know hopefully one day Episode 2 of our theory on capitalist realism. We are doing chapters 3 and 4. You know this is Shibby and Ryan, the Zen Marxist. You know what it is, you know who you came to see. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into chapter 3 right now. So chapter 3 is called Capitalism and the Real. And the chapter starts by opening up and talking about a 1984 book called Advertising the Uneasy Persuasion. And between this and uh, 1960s group of German pop artists making paradoxical references to socialist realism. So obviously this book's called Capitalist Realism. I'm sure you guys have a decent understanding of what that is and what that means now. It's basically, you know, your imagination and ideas being constrained by capitalism so much that you cannot even think of any other alternative, right? 
But socialist realism, if you go onto like Google Images and Google socialist realism, what you'll get is it was an art style that came out of the USSR when it still existed. It's basically an aesthetic style. Um, art and um, those kinds of things. You can see loads of great arts, uh, art and artists. It's not just out of the USSR. I think there are, you know, basically other places that have had a, a somewhat socialist system will have um, socialist realism. I'm pretty sure there's art out of places like Cuba um, that would fall under the category. So um, reading on then in the chapter, uh, Fisher says, what is new about my use of the term socialist realism is more expansive of capitalist realism is it's more expansive, even exorbitant, meaning that I ascribe to it. So capitalist realism, as he understands it, cannot be confined to art or to the quasi-propagandistic way in which advertising functions. It's more like a persuasive atmosphere, um, conditioning not only the production of culture, but also the regulation of work and education, and acting as a kind of invisible barrier constraining thought and action. So he's basically just laying out for us right here what his definition of capitalist realism. He then goes on to ask the question, if capitalist realism is so seamless, and if current forms of resistance are so hopeless or impotent, then where can effective change comes from? Um, his answer to this is that it can only be undermined, capitalist realism can only be undermined if it is shown to be inconsistent, so the real in realism is shown to actually not be real at all. But what is defined as being real is identified by uh, political determinations. But, however, an ideological position can never really be fully actualized until it is actually not seen as an ideological position at all. It has to be seen as a matter of fact. This is the naturalizing of systems, and this is exactly what capitalism has sought to do. And business ontology is a perfect example of this, right? So the idea in society that everything should be run as a business, and if you pay attention to, you know, US news, you'll actually notice that this is going on with the US Postal Service right now. Magazines, newspapers, uh, media companies like The Economist are running pieces about, you know, how much money the US Postal Service loses every year. But they can't even conceive of anything that exists to not provide a profit. They can't even conceive of something that would exist to provide a service. And that's what the US Postal Service is. It's there to provide a service. It's not a business. It's not there to make money. But of course, when viewed through the capitalist realist lens, everything comes down to the dollar amount. It comes down to, well, how much money is it making or losing? Well, the US Postal Service loses money every year. Okay, well then it must be bad. We must get rid of it. We must privatize it, right? It's the sort of business ontology that they can't even conceive of anything not turning a profit. That's despite the fact that I can't remember the actual term for it. There's an actual term because it's actually that widespread. It's made it into our vocabulary as an actual word. But where there will be like capitalists out there who actually intentionally do things to, you know, slow down the, the supply of certain materials so that the NHS gets a bad rep. And then that becomes an argument to privatize those areas. It's basically some kind of fucking scam to make like, you know, public services look bad. Do you, do you know what that term's called? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm not sure what the specific term for that is, but there are many terms you could use to describe that, right? You're essentially letting it die on the vine. So what you're doing is you're underfunding it so that it doesn't perform correctly, and then you're going to use the fact that it's not performing correctly as an argument as to why it should be privatised, right? 
You're just letting it die on the vine. Precisely that. Fisher goes on to talk about how emancipatory politics must always destroy the appearance of a natural order. They must reveal what is presented as necessary and inevitable to be a mere contingency, just as it must make what was previously deemed to be impossible seem attainable. So anyone who's read Gramsci will know about this, you know, Gramsci's idea of common sense, when he spoke about, you know, common sense being the highest degree of ideology. So if you talk to anyone about what their views on things like the market economy would be, it would be like, oh, the market makes everyone freer. That's just common sense, right? The idea that th this is no longer an ideological position, it's been risen above that. It isn't an ideological position anymore. It's just common sense. Everyone knows this. It's grandfathered into the way that ev they see the world. Um, so it no longer becomes an ideological position, but just a matter of fact. It just is that way. That's what Fisher's talking about here when he talks about uh, emancipatory politics must always destroy the appearance of the natural order. So all of these ideological positions that are being not presented as ideological positions, emancipatory politics must destroy that appearance of a natural order. It is always mm. the case that something is seen as impossible until it is done. So this has always been the way, you know, going to the moon seemed impossible. How are you going to get people up there? And then, you know, 10 years later, boom, it's done. It's happened. Everyone's been up there. USSR were up there, then America, everyone did it, and suddenly it was just the new normal, right? It's not impossible, everyone can do that, we've all done that, it's fine. He goes on to talk about modernization. So, modernization, Badu, bitterly observed, is the name for a strict and servile definition of the possible. So, these reforms invariably aim at making impossible what used to be practical for the largest number, and making profitable for the dominant oligarchy what did not used to be so. I just wanted to note how Fisher used the example of like what was deemed impossible become impossible. Mm -hmm. He said it's worth recalling that what is currently called realistic was itself once impossible. The slew of privatizations that took place since the 1980s would have been unthinkable only a decade earlier. Mm -hmm. And the current political economic landscape with unions and abeyance, utilities and railways denationalized would scarcely have been imagined in 1975. So, yeah, so it's funny the way, like, you, you use the example of, like, going to space, going to the moon to show what was previously seen as impossible and then be seen as possible. But Fisher never used the kind of positive example. He used a negative example when it comes to, like, privatization and how that was seen as impossible so i just think that that's again just another bleak gothic example on which to me really emphasizes the contempt for capitalism that was going through fish's mind during the writing of this book which is you know often very quite quite starkly grim yeah for sure you know it's, he talks about you know why that was made possible the breakdown of unions the um denationalization of utilities and railways etc right that that, that no one would have thought they would have happened and then they, you know, did and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's just the way things are. Everyone knows that they're going to um, privatise these things. That's just normal, right? Jeez. Definitely. He goes on to say, as Alenka Zupankic explained, um, psychoanalysis's positioning of a reality principle invites us to be suspicious of any reality that presents itself as natural. The reality principle, Zupankic writes, is not some kind of natural way associated with, with how things are. The reality principle itself is ideologically mediated. 
one could even claim that it constitutes the highest form of ideology. The ideology that presents itself as empirical fact, or biological economic fact, or a necessity, and that we tend to perceive as non-ideological. It is precisely there that you should be most alert to the functioning of ideology. So this is exactly, um, basically just restating what I said about Gramsci's idea of common sense, right? It's exactly those things that present themselves as non-ideological that you should look and be the most suspicious of as being ideological. I mean, if you were to speak to any business person about, you know, the privatization of utilities or railways, they would say, no, no, that's not an ideological position. That's just business. That's just how things are. That's just how it has to be. And it's precisely at those moments when people tell you, no, no, that's just how it is, that you uh, have to be instantly suspicious that that's the height of ideology. You can also see this when talking with, um, you know, sort of uh, right-wing race realists, right? They'll say, black people are just inferior and that's just how it is, right? So that should immediately trigger that same alarm in your head. No, that isn't true, right? Anytime anyone is telling you that's just how it is, that's the height of ideology. It is not just true that black people are inferior and that's the way it is. What you're doing is you're giving me an ideological position and quoting it as a matter of fact. And that's what it is, right? It's an ideological position dressed up as a fact uh, and it, it just isn't so. It reminds you what Zola said on a, a Diaspora Britain episode where she'll have people come up and say, you know, I'm, I'm not political, you know, I don't get into politics and all that. And she's like, well, like, how have you got a wallet? You know what I mean? If you've got a wallet, you've got money. Like, that's political. Like, that's from, like, an economic system. You can't say you're not political while participating in an economic system, but that's, you know, geopolitical in scale. Yeah, so, I mean, everything's everything's political. Like, I don't even... I don't even believe there's any such thing as non-political. That doesn't exist in the world. Yeah. You know, the nature of something being non-political is, is ridiculous, right? If you go to school, that's political. or It's political parties and political policies that determine how much school you get, what postcode that's in, how much money you get, the class size. If you drive, then you drive on roads. The condition of those roads is dependent on how much money is going to those roads. That's political. You know, if you, when you go to work, your wage is determined by politics, largely by what, um, you know, what your employer's doing. Sometimes it's dependent on political party, whether they want to raise or lower the minimum wage, right? So the idea that you can be non-political or do anything non-political is is ridiculous it, it's not true it can't exist yeah uh, so this cap this chapter capitalism and the real is really emphasizing what fisher started off in his first two chapters where he, he does take pop culture and use that to really make this point about the effects of culture you know, on the artists and the audience who watch it. But I really wanted to make a defense for the people here who I think are made out to be quite ignorant and quite stupid. Um, so here's my defense for the people. I'm going to look at the contradiction. I'm going to attack it from a dialectic. And then, you know, we'll go from there because I just wanted to like reiterate what was said in the last episode that people generally don't know what capitalism is so it's hard to be against capitalism if you don't even know that it, it's a thing like i'm pretty sure that like most people hear the word capitalism from 
revolutionaries out there on the streets on the picket fences you know climate change activists saying you know capitalism's the fucking not the cure it's extinction and shit so you know we're not taught in school that we live under capitalism and to those maybe of non-imperialist nations or those of different cultural backgrounds who are listening like i really want to paint the picture that not only are we neglected from being taught about the economic model in which we live under but we grow up where like even the sky is commodified so airplanes jet over our heads frequently most clouds are merely vapor trails from planes or the vapor of nuclear power plants even our sky and the landscape on that is completely artificial in in most senses kids believe that cheese is from some kind of plant they don't know where milk comes from they know apple products before they know what an apple is to quote loki so not only the capitalist materials shape the world so it's physically impossible to survive without it because there are no berries down our neighborhoods no mango trees or avocados in sight despite the huge trend in it being in every single restaurant no there's only tesco's electricity and gas companies that we rely on so that we don't die by the elements so our very existence is dependent on the capitalist mode of production while it also pacifies us with consumer products so-called luxury items so i mean i mentioned this again to draw out the contradictions the dialectics of both sides and to be fair and to not like paint the masses of people like idiots you know so that's you know an observation i've made i think it's a fair one but again it just reinforces the fact of how valuable uh, comments like you know mark fisher and gramsky are who you can categorize in almost the same strain of uh, the theory or theoretical thoughts when it comes to addressing culture and the modes of production in which propagate ideology i think it's it's fair to say that like mark fisher could almost be seen as you know our generation's gramsci i think in a lot of ways so what, what do you think of that comparison ryan i mean yeah potentially but i i never blame the individuals for you know um being or thinking the way they do right so like when it comes to people who have only ever lived in cities they don't know you know about like rural life or you know cattle or animals or anything like i'm never going to blame them for that because that's just that's just where they were born they were you know that's what they were grown up around that's all they've seen that's all they know and then they get you know propagandized by whatever the school system or whatever to think in certain ways about certain things so i never i never blame the individuals for thinking the way they do um i simply blame the system that implanted those ideas in them and i even take this to people who you know like um right-wingers in the united states that watch fox news and vote trump right like i don't blame the people for that I blame Fox News for that, right? Because they are the propaganda, the propagandization outlet, right? They're the, I blame the propagandas, not the propagandees, because no one is uh, immune from propaganda. So if, mm. if you've, if you're born in that world and, you know, your parents watched Fox News and that's just the news channel that you grew up on. So now when you're, 30 and you have your own place you now watch that i don't actually blame you for that right because that's all you've known that's the waters that you grew up in that's just how you were raised um but i do blame fox news for that because they didn't have to be a, a giant propagandistic piece of shit right but it's not the people's fault for that so i see a lot of this like people blame 
Trump supporters for for voting Trump, even though everyone knows how a disaster he is and everything. Yeah, okay, sure. I mean, but it's, I don't see them as, you know, people who are even, have agency in in a certain way, right? Because, I mean, I, I personally think everything's deterministic anyway. So if you grew up in that environment with those conditions, you grew up around those, you know, if you had, like, right-wing evangelical parents who only ever had, you know, right-wing propagandistic news shows on your TV, you grew up into that. You knew, and it doesn't mean that that means you had to be right-wing. There are plenty of uh, people who grew up in that kind of a household that aren't right-wing, right? But it's not surprising if a person turns out to be right-wing because their parents are and that's all they've ever known and all their news stations and every TV show they watch is like that. It's not surprising to me. So I don't blame the people for that. I blame the system around them that created the conditions that made that person that way. Yeah, so I I was going to respond to say... I'm immune to propaganda. And then I remembered when these models come out, you know, the Black Lives Matter protest, where they, where they were saying that they were the fucking Black Panther Party and everybody thought, oh, the Black Panther Party back and it was just like three models on Instagram. I was like, like, I fell for that shit. But like, I was like, wow, they're, they're quite fit them. But like, obviously they're going to be good looking because they're fucking models. So yeah, uh, you know, I'm I'm not immune to propaganda. Yeah, it's so I mean, easy to buy into it when you when you when when you're being shown what you want to see. Do you know what I mean? For sure. And the new Black Panther Party are not the same as the original Black Panther Party. Um, the new Black Panther Party has actually been. Uh by the original Black Panther Party saying, like, they have our name, but they don't stand for what we do. They have really strange uh, beliefs at sometimes. But that's besides the point. The the idea here is that propaganda, I don't even see that as, like, a bad term. So for me, propaganda is a value-neutral term. Anytime you're trying to get someone to think about something or teach someone about something, you're propagandizing them, right? Everyone thinks that that's a bad term. But if I start teaching you about, like, I don't know, like uh, healthcare and the need to have a great public healthcare system, right? You could mm. say that I am propagandizing you to believe in a public healthcare system. Yeah, I am, because that's a great thing, and you should be, and you should want that. To, to you should want to know about how great yeah. that is. It's not a value. It's a value neutral term, right? Yeah, we see, should. Anyway. We've we've got to be out there. We got to be out there propagandizing every day. We got to be telling the people the truth every day. You know, obviously that's what late stage imperialism to me. It's a flipping countercultural hegemony propaganda mach- machine on a platform which desperately needs some fucking. Something to kick back at the capitalist ideology that's being shoved down people's throats, the fucking racists and white supremacists and the fucking liberals. But also just to before we move on, I did want to mention like if if you're telling somebody this, say somebody's read all of this and then they just turn around and they just ignore it or they're still just not willing to be brave enough to stand up for the rights of the people and the politicians everywhere for the international proletarian revolution if they know it they read it and they still turn around and they're, they're not supporting the people those are people to put on your list of reactionaries and start building a wall for the revolution for them don't engage with people who are reactionary after you've really put in some time to try and educate them some it only goes so far you're only going to end up burnt out trust me i know this sure 
Let me hop back into the chapter right here. Mm-hmm. And for Lacan, for so for any of you know, um, there are tons of Lacanian Marxists. He's basically a, a a psychoanalysis, you know, from the he he was a psychoanalyst and he came up with this whole. Um, anyone might know him from Petit Object R. Um, that's a whole different conversation. We could do some Lacan at some point. Um, but yeah, he's great. Oh yeah, so. So, sorry, just talked about different conversations when you just mentioned that you see everything as deterministic. That was proper interesting because I was, I was dying to like ask you about what do you think of him. Um, you know, the determinism versus free will. But uh, yeah, that's a conversation for another side, uh, another time. So we'll just stick a pin in that. We can well, do that for sure. I mean, I literally have a video yeah. on my YouTube channel called Free Will versus Determinism, right? So That's what I'm saying. So I was dying to ask you while we were talking to Brett because he's, he's probably got to go down to himself. But yeah, I mean, like I'm dying to go down that route. But, you know, at some point, yeah, we'll do that. But please continue. Sorry for interrupting. Can't, no, it's all good. Interrupt whenever you want. So for for so for Lacan, the real is what reality must suppress. Okay, so indeed, reality constitutes itself through this repression. The real is an unrepresentative X, which is a traumatic void that can only be glimpsed in the fractures and inconsistencies of the field of apparent reality. So one strategy against capitalist realism could involve invoking the real or reals underlying the reality that capitalism presents to us, right? So the idea there is that What's real, so capital R real, what's truly real is what, quote unquote, this ideological reality must suppress. Um, and that's that's basically the idea there. Uh, so one such real is environmental disaster. So um, climate change and the threat of resource depletion are not being re- repressed so much as incorporated into advertising and marketing. So what this treatment of environmental catastrophe illustrates is the fantasy structure on which capital realism depends, right? It's a presupposition that all resources are infinite. We then see a Wally comeback from chapter one. So in the end, Wally represents a version of this fantasy. The idea that there are infinite that the infinite expansion of capital is possible, that capital can proliferate without labor. On the off-world ship, Axiom, all labor is performed by robots, that the burning of Earth's resources is only a temporary glitch, and that after a suitable period of recovery, capitalism can return, terraform the planet, and recolonize it, right? So the idea here is that, you know, capital is infinite. It it can infinitely expand. There's no such thing as the end of capitalism. It doesn't need that. We just go off world, wait for capital to sort things out, come back and just repeat the whole cycle again. Fun. Yeah, something like that. So the relationship here between capitalism and eco-disaster is neither coincidental nor accidental, right? So capital's need for a constantly expanding market, its growth fetish, mean that capitalism is by its very nature opposed to any notion of sustainability. And this is a, a really easy way you can convince people that capitalism can't last. And I do this all the time. I just boil it down to this, right? So all you do is you ask the person, when when does when do when do companies have enough of making money? When are they ever going to say, okay, we've made enough money? That's it. Never, right? So what you're when, saying when to they've me, got to pay the taxes? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, but they'll still keep making money, right? So the idea there is that 
It's never, right? They want infinite growth. They want infinite growth, infinite money, and they want this system to keep going forever. So compare that against the Earth. Does the Earth have infinite resources? No. So what capitalism is, is a system that demands infinite growth on a planet with limited resources. Right there's the contradiction. That's the bottom line for me. You cannot have a system that wants infinite growth at all. Because there's nothing in the world that's infinite. There is an infinite money, infinite oil, infinite water, infinite food, right? So you cannot have a system that thrives on infinite because it's never going to last, right? Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of cancer, right? So it, it, it's definitionally unsustainable. It will never last. Yeah, but Ryan, don't you realize that some things that were deemed impossible <laughs> always turn about to be possible like have you considered i don't know maybe capturing asteroids and bringing them to the planet with rich minerals on i don't think you have you're not taking this very seriously <laughs> so things like that are possible sure i'm sure at some point we'll <laughs> learn to catch asteroids and bring them in blah 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 right but even the necess even the necessity of asteroids aren't infinite i mean okay damn close but those things aren't consistent, right? You can have a period of 20, 30, 50 years where no asteroids pass by us because we're just a tiny little speck in the, some like outer edge of the uh, universe here. There's no guarantee that you'll get asteroids or any of the um, systems that you need or any of the rare earth minerals that you need to, to continue. It's, it's not just that. I mean, that, that could happen, yeah, but obviously... The more you bring it into the earth, the atmosphere is still going to get full of more and more shit. So For sure. let, let's move on. I just wanted to finish up on the, those couple of paragraphs there because when Fisher bring, talks about the environment and environmental dis disaster, climate change as a threat of, you know, resource depletion and it... Um, and, you know, how this becomes repressed and so much is incorporated into advertising and marketing. Mm -hmm. Well, I really, at the risk of upsetting some listeners here, um, again, massive respect for them. You just know that from other episodes. But I really wanted to talk about two things, and that was uh, the environmental movement as well as veganism. Because, you know, if you remember, Ryan, can you remember this when... It was it was a good it was a good few years ago when people started getting images of you know cow farms and farms in general and the the disgusting conditions in which you know um, what do you call a fucking farm life or you, you know the agricultural industry treats these animals uh, the livestock industry treats these animals and. It was all over the news. People's heads were falling off. They're like, oh, my God, they're in these small conditions. They're constantly getting milking up, you know, milked all the time. People, they, this was not in the general uh, consciousness of the people. So uh, can you remember that? And then this was actually when free-range products started coming out not long after that. Can you remember that, the emergence of free-range? Yeah, yeah. Range? I, yeah, I, I yeah. Mean, and it was specifically after these images hit the news. So consumers were like shocked. And then, you know, business owners were like, well, fucking hell, that's just how we do it. You know, we've got to change all these things. And then suddenly, you know, they figured out 
oh my god yeah let's just do these free range products give them a little bit more room and then people are buying free range products this interpassivity coming into again when obviously these animals are still being absolutely tortured living depression humiliating demeaning lives just to be butchered in an inhumane way but people are buying the free range products and then it gets taken to an, another level and then that's where you know veganism started becoming a more general uh, thing and then well, once veganism or it was vegetarianism first wasn't it that people was really getting into and then vegan products started coming about and then suddenly it's it's more po possible for more people to become vegans because supermarkets were getting more and more vegan pro products and i think you know the the evolution of the consumer products when it comes to free range to vegetarianism to veganism excuse me and then you see like other paleo diets and all that shit come come out just to take it to another level and then you know um i i see very much the same the same trends in like climate change and you know it's it's it is this interpassivity and that's why as revolutionary marxists we have to one million percent be checking like i'm saying one million percent like a lot but we've got to be checking these out um in in a serious analysis not to become into passive ourselves in in our own worldview um so yeah, there's definitely tons to be said here but the reason that i am infinitely skeptical of the current environmentalist movement is not because we don't need to save the environment duh of course we do it's the way they go about it and the explicit ideology that's present within that that way of thinking right so you know you hear a lot about this idea of a personal carbon footprint right everyone's worried about their own personal carbon footprint do you know where this idea came from go on uh, British Petroleum, right? So they popularized, yeah, they popularized this idea because they knew that if they can pass the buck, right, they can put the put the responsibility of saving the planet on each individual person. It's no longer on them, right? And this is what I try yeah. to get across to people all the time when people are talking about like, actually, what we have to do is get everyone to stop uh, eating meat. Okay, look, listen. Yes, if you are if you are a vegan or a vegetarian, you are having less impact on the planet than someone who eats. Of course, that's true. Sure, but the answer to these issues is not to get everyone on the planet to go vegan for a couple reasons. One, you're never going to do it ever. Okay, you will not get every single person on the planet to go vegan. Two, what you're doing is you're individualizing systems and structures. Okay, we definitely need to get rid of in, 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 uh, industrial agricultural and farming. We definitely need to do that. But are you going to do that by a getting everyone on the planet somehow to not buy them, or b actually legislate and uh, uh, legislate them using politics them out of existence? It's b. You need to go b. Okay, because you're ne like I said, you're never going to get everyone to not buy meat and. If you have the political system under your control, you can just legislate them out of existence. You can just sign a piece of paper, boom, they're gone. You no longer have to deal with trying to get billions of people to suddenly not eat meat anymore, right? So this is why... So I don't know where I really stand on this. It's like, oh. <laughs> vegans aren't bad people. Of course they're not bad people. Sure, you're having less of an impact on society than I am. Yes, that's true. But... The idea that if you think you're going to save society by being vegan, you're not. You're just not, right? But uh, obviously, look, again, don't want to offend nobody in that, but like, 
Well, <laughs> just think about this, right? What, what I've just said about free range vegetarianism, veganism, all becoming like a slow consumer trend as as these um, companies jump on the band the consumer bandwagon. What it does is it produces two modes of consumption. So, um, I mean, look, I work in a fucking supermarket, right? Walls. Walls have got fucking jumbo rolls, vegan so, so, like sausages. Richmond have got like, you know, fucking vegan sausages like Sayers, Greggs. All all these meat companies have got vegan products. So what happens is consumers go from buying these meat products to buying ve vegan products from meat suppliers. Like what kind of circular logic's that? And then you you know, even if they, they go off the trend, walls just still made double the money because because they've they've got a monopoly over the vegan products in the market as well. So how could you possibly buy like a, a vegan product from a meat supplier? And that's what fucking people are doing, Ryan. How does that make any sense? How are you combating like anything when you're putting money in the hands of these people who are torturing animals? Like it doesn't make sense to me. There's one solution, and that's to absolutely find the names of uh, the names and the fucking house locations of the people who are making policies, uh, damaging the environment, damaging the ecosystems, you know, destroying the planet, torturing animals. Yeah. Chop, chopping them up, blowing people up. We've got to find their names and, and put them against the wall, baby. That's what that's what is that's what to be that's what has to be done. And if you're not doing that, you become an interpassive. You become an interpassive, and you're a capitalist and a liberal. I mean, the idea here that I actually did a YouTube video on this idea, right? It's called Global Warming, Vote With Your Dollar. Because people kept telling me that, you know, you, what you have to do is vote with your dollar and then global it's warming will go away. Video. Yeah, I mean, personally, that's my favorite video I did, honestly, um, uh, because that's what people kept telling me, right? When I kept telling people, no, you don't understand, like these companies are still going to do whatever they're doing, whether you're buying vegan products or not. And I only ever got met with vote with your dollar, right? So the idea that capitalism can save us somehow. No, no, you just don't understand. If you think that capitalism's bad, what you need to do is go and do capitalism, right? Like this, this whole thing's ridiculous. It doesn't matter how many vegan sausages you buy, BP is still dumping oil into waterways right the u.s military is still the largest polluter on the planet you can't not buy from them you can't choose to not buy from the u.s military right and it doesn't matter what oil producer you buy from because they're all political uh, they're all environmentally disastrous it doesn't matter if you buy from bp or shell right so the idea that you can you know buy your way or purchase your way out of this is uh it's literally capitalist realism right there's no there's no existence other than capitalism just use the money that they've given you to you know p pay for oppression a instead of oppression b yeah that too um it just reminds me of way back when um over a year ago i saw your meme posted on the anti-consumption sub and it says <laughs> you know you know what was it the andre and whatever one it is where he's got the gun oh, and yeah Eric andre the when he's, yeah, yeah the, the future of life on earth and then he fucking shoots him saying 100 companies and then the second slide is why would everybody individually choose to do this right. and then i commented on this like this is the single greatest means to ever come out of this sub mm -hmm. and then like i didn't know you then and then like i don't know maybe six months down the line i found out that you actually made that meme and then 
you know, I saw your global warming video. It's like, oh, this guy is fucking a, a genius on the same page here. And then, um, so yeah, like me and you have always spoke about, you know, climate change, global warming, these issues. I think that that's why we're talking about veganism so much now, because it's really seen as kind of an environmental thing as well. But again, we're talking about this capitalist realism, this interpassivity. That's why we bring it up and we really analyze these things in in a deep serious sense and we're not trying to attack nobody personally we're not trying to yeah again know, like i said i don't nobody. believe individuals like it's it's hard to do when you're individual like when you're talking to them and they're being obtuse but like i said before i don't blame individuals like i don't blame you if you really think that the only way out of this is capitalism because that's what you've been told all your life so i'm not blaming you as an individual for that it's just really annoying when i'm trying to talk to you about it and all i get met with is capitalism's the answer and I didn't even know that so many people had that view until I started doing those memes in the anti uh, in the anti consumption sub, right? Because mm. I just started talking to people in that sub, and all I ever got met with is no, actually, capitalism good, capitalism is savior, and it, it didn't make any sense to me. So that's when I started getting into that fight with them, and I started memeing on them, and people got mad, and that was the inspiration for doing that video because I was like, no, you guys actually don't understand it, and it didn't matter to me, it didn't matter to them how much i would explain or talk to them about it they just didn't i don't know that maybe they just didn't understand it or i'm just terrible at explaining things maybe but it wasn't getting through to them and i'm like right that's it like i need to do a video on this i'm just going to get this idea across in a video long form where i can just talk about it and, and rant about it essentially um and that's where that video came from it was from you know bumping heads against people who were just like no capitalism will save and uh <laughs> As you mentioned in the last episode, it was Zizek who said, oh, you know, I've put me cans in a recycling bin right. and, you know, fuck it, I've done my bit for the climate. And that's really much what, like, the culture's like on anti-consumption and, and other subs like that. Fucking capitalist realism within yeah. Reddit is unbelievable. And that's, that's even why more dangerous, right? Exists. That's but even it's... more dangerous because now people who recycle think they're helping when they're actually not. They'll say, no, I'm a good person, I recycle, so I don't have to do anything else, right? Mm. But actually, no, you're not You're not helping. Well, eh, I mean, you might be helping the tiniest of bit, but this isn't, this isn't an action that's going to save the planet, right? It's, like, necessary but insufficient, right? If we need, like, 50% participation to save the world, and each action has a percent ascribed to it, recycling is, like, 0.1%. Is it something? Yes. Is it better than nothing? Yes. Will it save the planet? No, right? So the idea that, you know, you're now a good person because you recycle is, is, is prima facie ridiculous. It's not going to save the planet. You're definitely not a person, you're a consumer. So we were talking about environmentalism because Fisher talks about it. Just can't really overstate this shit because we're talking about saving the entire planet here. So, you know, maybe 50 years down the line, if we're all swimming up to our necks in water, <laughs> you know at least i can at least feel somewhat comforted in the fact that 50 years ago we fucking told you sort it out i guess so continuing in the chapter fisher then talks about how in the 1960s and 70s there were tons of radical theory in politics such as foucault deleuze and Guattari. those are probably all people that we'll get to at some point all of them have great theory and all these people coalesced around the idea that extreme mental conditions such as schizophrenia arguing for instance that madness was not a natural but instead a political category right 
But what is needed now is a politicization of much more common disorders. So indeed, um, it is their very commonness which is the issue. So in Britain, which is where we are, where Fisher lived and worked, depression is now the condition that is most treated by the NHS. But there's a book called The Selfish Capitalist, uh, written by Oliver James, and he convincingly posited a correlation between rising rates of mental illness and the neoliberal mode of production, or capitalism, um, practiced in countries like, you know, Britain, the USA, Australia. So, in line with James's claims, Fisher wanted to argue that it is necessary to reframe the growing problem of stress and distress in capitalist societies. Right? Again, the question here becomes, how... Has it become acceptable or just the norm that so many people and especially young people are uh, mentally ill, right? The mental health plague in capitalist societies would suggest that instead of being the only social system that works, capitalism is indeed inherently dysfunctional and that the cost of it appearing to work is incredibly high. Um, so the next thing Fisher talks about after mental illness here is actually bureaucracy in taking their case against socialism. So let's pause there and just talk about that one first of all. So again, this is the naturalizing of systems, right? So the idea that mental illness is actually a result of the current political climate, no. Instead, they want to naturalize it and say, well, that's just how it is. That's just... they. In fact, the system itself, I don't know if this he talks about this further on. He might. But what they do instead is they make it a biological thing, right? They make it a um, a chemical imbalance instead of a societal issue. And that works for them in a number of ways. Firstly, because it deflects blame from the society, right? Nothing's wrong with society, it's just you as an individual. That's goal one it achieves for them. Two, it also means that they can sell you the solution, right? Instead of it being a societal problem that they, they can't sell you a solution to that, they'll tell you it's an individual problem and thus nothing's wrong with society and they can sell you pills for it, right? So it's a double winner for them. They get to make money off of it and protect the current established ideological order. Yeah, you know, uh, I think that a lot of people would also see it as a kind of like conspiracy in a sense that they put us on pills to keep us docile rather than cure like mental, mental health. Like, for example, if you went to like an actual mental institution, you're probably going to be plastered with all kinds of drugs to be made docile and just, you know, it's really just an absolutely fucking tragic, tragic thing to consider how people become that crazy, that deranged, that broken mentally in, in society that we even have these like kind of, you know, for mental homes in quotations. Something I, I like, I can't help read this with like a, a lot of a lot of weight in my heart because Fisher of course took his own life I don't think it would be any exaggeration to say that Fisher really suffered with mental health problems himself he speaks in you know to great lengths all over the internet on mental health problems and you know I, I do think we mentioned Kirk Cobain taking his own life in like chapters one or two and you know, what What was he said? I'm looking for, he said something about, you know, how in this dreadful latitude and objectless rage, Cobain seemed to give a weary voice to the dependency of a generation that had come after history, whose every move was anticipated, tracked, bought and sold before it ever happened. 
Cobain knew that he was just another piece of the spectacle, that nothing runs better on MTV than a protest against MTV, that every move was a cliché scripted in advance, knew that even realising it is a cliché. Now, Mark Fisher published this book himself, or with with a mate, I think, who, who published it on Zero Books, but I really can't help but see similarities between Kirk Cobain's last life and Mark Fisher's, because Fisher himself is, is almost a piece of the spectacle now that, you know, his book has been bought by probably so many liberals to become <laughs> into passive themselves. It's a protest not against MTV, but against the cultural economic system, which MTV is facilitated under, that every move was a cliche. Again, we're talking about it now. Some of it's going to be on our Patreon, directing some traffic to there. So it's almost like, just I can't not read this and think about him taking his own life with every single sentence. I just can't do it. I can't separate his suicide with everything he said is so accurate. And, you know, it, it will be such a burden to, this is how he sees the entire world. And it's just so, so heavy. And I, you know, I, you know, I just really wanted to to comment on his suicide there, and and really contrast it with what happened to Kirk Cobain. I really do think that it was relevant, and I do think that that was, you know, almost a a signal into something that he's considered within his own within his own life. If you get me. Yeah, definitely. And in regards to what you said earlier about it being, you know potentially conspiratorial or whatever, let me just build this argument from the ground up so that you'll understand why that actually doesn't fall into this, right? So, I mean, if you have a Marxist understanding of society, then you understand the base and the superstructure, which means that you understand that the superstructure is spawned from the base and, you know, it goes around cyclically, which means that every institution within society is influenced, protected, and created for the explicit purpose of capitalism, right? So uh, we've talked about this tons before, but law, you get bourgeois law that benefits property, cap property owners, private property, capital, etc. right? Um, religion, you get, uh, you, in, instead of getting like a religion that exists for the common good, you get past the plate, collection plate, cap uh, religion that it talks about, you know, I need money for this, money for that, Joel Osteen, he needs another private jet, all of that, right? So there's no institution within society. Even science itself, right? The, if you read um, any science journals now, they're paywalled, right? They're put behind a paywall. So even the institution of science, which is a great thing, is being constrained and restricted um, by the, the, the profit motive. And even if you talk to researchers, scientific researchers, you, you hear them talk about, you know, there isn't funding for certain things. So you just can't research certain things, right? Because the research grant isn't there for it. So it restricts and constrains everything within society. So, which means capitalism has its hand in everything in society, from science to religion, etc. So medicine is the exact same thing, right? And when it comes to something like mental health, this is an ideological thing where capitalism also has a hand. You're never going to get a mental health system that says capitalism is the issue. You're never going to get a mental health system, not within capitalism, right? Because it's, it's not going to work that way. It's an ideological institution that's set up to protect the ideological system that it exists within now that's not the fault of again i don't 
blame individuals, right? That's not the fault of the doctors, right? They just go to work, they do their thing, they have bills to pay as well. It's not necessarily their fault. They're trying to do everything they can. That's what the research shows. That's what they think is best for people. And it does work for some people, right? I'm not saying that all medicines are bad always. Um, I'm not, you know, anti-science. We're not anti-vax or anything like that. It's just... And like I said, those medications can help some people. They do good for some people some of the time, right? But it's still reinforcing the ideological position. Excellent point, Rainer. I couldn't have said it much better myself, but just to finish up on what you said, the medicines do definitely help a lot of people a lot of the time, but they don't help them nearly as much as the capitalists who have uh, copyright over that product. So, yeah, uh, good stuff. We're, we're making good progress here. We've, we've talked about, you know, many subjects off script, but I think that's important because everything that's mentioned within capitalist realism is obviously about the world. So it's good to analyze and, and reflect on the world as we move through this. Yeah, so within this chapter, uh, the next thing Fisher talks about after mental illness is actually bureaucracy in taking their case against socialism, right? So neoliberal ideologies often excoriate the top-down bureaucracy, which is supposedly led to institutional sclerosis and um, ex and inefficiency in command economies, right? So whenever you talk to a capitalist about socialism, they'll always talk about the top-down bureaucratic model and that's why it's bad, blah, 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 dictatorship, blah, 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 right? But within the triumph of neoliberalism, bureaucracy was supposed to have been made obsolete, right? And it was supposed to be a relic of an unlamented Stalinist past. Uh, but this is at odds with the experience of most working and living people in late capitalism for whom bureaucracy remains very much a part of everyday life. Instead of disappearing, bureaucracy has changed its form, and this new decentralized form has allowed it to proliferate. The persistence of bureaucracy in late capitalism does not itself indicate that capitalism does not work, rather what it suggests is that the way in which capitalism does work is very different from the picture presented by capitalist realism. People like to say that, you know, and that it isn't as present in um, capitalist societies. Um, I remember watching a Zizek thing. It might have been his video called like A Pervert's Guide to Ideology or something like that, but there's a scene in it where he talks about this. He talks about bureaucracy and I can't remember what film it's from, but there's a clip. That Zizek film is, is essentially clips from loads of other films and then he talks about why this is actually capitalism. Um, and there's one for bureaucracy and I can't remember exactly, but it's like a group of people running around all following a guy with a clipboard. And it's all about bureaucracy and that, you know, where's my office? This is his office. And they go around with a clipboard. And I can't entirely remember the point, but he uses it within his film very poignantly to um, suggest that bureaucracy is a self-licking ice cream cone, right? The idea here is that bureaucracy exists to further itself. It's a self-licking ice cream cone. It exists to make more things for bureaucracy to do. Um, it, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more bureaucracy you have, the more bureaucracy you need to take care of the bureaucracy that you have. And it, it's like a Ouroboros, right? It feeds itself. It's a snake chasing its own tail. So for the layman out there, i.e. I, me, could you attribute that to industries becoming privatized and then the private companies having more CEOs, more shareholders, and then, and then enforcing their own policies to, I don't know, you could say speed up fucking business or something. Does that make it more bureaucratic in that sense? Or um, I mean, yeah, kind of. So that exists, but bureaucracy isn't 
uh, restrained only to the private sector, right? So bureaucracy is very much present in the public sector. If you go to the NHS, there's tons of bureaucracy and it's ever, ever growing. It's not about public versus private industries. It's about the nature of capitalism itself and its, and its need for bureaucracy as a control system. So like the ultimate form of bureaucracy, could you say is territories? Uh, you mean like geographical territories? Yeah. Um, like at its highest stage, because you've got to, you've got to do some kind of form or contract or something to to give the land to somebody, and then they they govern it, and then they I, I don't I, just forget about that. No, I mean it's not totally uh wrong i mean if you talk about lenin talking about imperialism being the highest stage of capitalism you know the way because in which countries what if what if like because if there is no borders or no territories then there would be no bureaucracy yeah like, you, if there's I mean, no sure. property is that is that what it is like you i could, don't know you could make some parallel for sure between like the way international politics works in settler colonial or neo-colonial countries being incredibly bureaucratic right the idea that everything has to be um checked double triple and everything checked um do i talk about kafka here because if you want to talk about bureaucracy you want to talk about kafka and i remember it being in okay it's at the beginning of chapter four so we'll get to it there because if you want to talk about you know um bureaucratic works kafka is incredible at this and we'll get to it in chapter four but i love kafka um well we'll get to it for sure because that's bureaucracy down to a T, and I, I love Kafka. He's excellent. So this chapter here, finish, uh, Fisher finishes the chapter by saying he um, focused on mental health and bureaucracy simply because they both feature heavily in an area of culture which has been increasingly dominated by the imperatives of capitalist realism, which is education. Right. And this is because Fisher, of course, worked in education and he explains how further education, uh, colleges, universities were removed from local authority control in the early 90s and have become subject to both market pressures and to government imposed targets. Right. So there's that thing again about it not being private or public sector. It's both. Right. The, the market pressure, that's the private sector and government imposed targets that there's public sector. So um, no sector is um, uh, spared from bureaucracy here. It's, it's capitalism itself. It's the whole whole system. They have been they have been at the vanguard of changes that would have rolled out through the rest of the education system and public services, a kind of lab in which neoliberal reforms of education have been trialed. And as such, they are the perfect place to begin an analysis of the effects of capitalist realism. Yeah, so that's what he's talking about there, you know. The reason he focused on mental health and bureaucracy is because they both heavily feature in education. Um, and as such, he thinks that, you know, education has become a, uh, a test lab, essentially, for these neoliberal reforms um, under the effect of capitalist realism. Mm, so I'm just trying to check if, make sure that what I'm saying is in the next chapter. A lot of bureaucracies in the next chapter, and I'm going to love talking about Kafka. So I love Kafka so much. Does he mention about the kid with the headphones in class in chapter three or four? Uh, find da, 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 da. It's definitely in here, so it must be four. Yeah, it's four. Okay, uh, okay. So just on that chapter, so Ryan, he mentions Stalinism a few times, and 
you know, I, I do wonder if you know any more about this because it seems to me that he's. I know that on one of the last chapters, Marxism is in that title, but I haven't actually read it. I'm really looking forward to getting down to that chapter, but he doesn't really openly come out as as a Marxist, does he? And I think that like one of his in, like one of the the things that inhibits him to do that. It does seem to be like he's kind of anti-Stalinist. Do you, do you know anything more about that? Um, I don't know. I don't even know if he is anti-Stalinist. Like the idea, what he was talking about there is he's talking about like when when people talk about bureaucracies or when capitalists talk about bureaucracies, they talk about it being a thing of socialist economies, right? They talk about it like, oh, bureaucracy. Oh no, that's only present within you know, Stalinist systems, a top-down command economy. It's only present there. We don't have it, they have it, right? He's saying that, you know, they never talk about it being a thing of capitalism. They only talk about it being a thing of opposing and um, competing systems. I actually don't know where Fisher was on that. Um, I don't even know if he used the label Marxist to call himself. I really don't know how he, like, referred to himself as. Yeah, because a uh, uh, sh- uh, shit, you know, um, he's, he has mentioned Stalinism, I can't remember where, but... Hmm. Yeah, he, he, yeah, we did it at the beginning of chapter three, right? Um, um, not Well, not the beginning, but here... Hold on, let me... Do, 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 do. Yeah, here, he says here, the next thing Fisher talks about in this chapter is, after mental illness is bureaucracy in making their case against socialism. So neoliberal ideologues often excoriate the top-down bureaucracy, which supposedly led to institutional sclerosis, and um, it's supposed to be a relic of an unlamented Stalinist past. Yeah. So he's just saying that, like, neoliberal people talk about bureaucracy as being a thing of a Stalinist past, not something that their system relies okay. on or needs. Here's the quote I'm looking at. But we're lucky if we don't live in a condition of evil. Our democracy is not perfect, but it's better than the bloody dictatorships. Capitalism is unjust, but it's not criminal like Stalinism. Uh, what page is this? Because oh, I get the feeling okay. he's talking okay. about what the ca- what a capitalist would say, right? What yeah, page is this? yeah, he is. Uh, nine, nine. You're right. Yeah, that he's a uh, he's talking in the voice of a capitalist liberal. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's mocking it. Yeah, saying so capitalism is just, but it's not criminal like Stalinism. We let millions of Afri- of Africans die of AIDS, but we don't like, but we don't make racist national declarations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I'm, re- I'm ready to move on. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so that's chapter three, so we're going to hop over into chapter four now. Chapter four is called Reflexive Impotence, Immobilization, and Liberal Communism. So Fisher opens up chapter four talking about British students uh, being worse than French students in regard to their resignation to the system. So um, reflexive impotence amounts to an unstated worldview amongst the British young, and it has its correlate in widespread pathologies. So Fisher talks about many of the teens he worked with had uh, mental health problems or learning difficulties and the uh, depression is endemic. It's the condition most dealt with by the NHS and is affecting people at increasingly young ages. But the number of people who have seen um, some variant of dyslexia is now astonishing. Um, It's not an exaggeration to say that this 
that being a teenager in late capitalist Britain is now close to being reclassified as a sickness. Um, this pathologization already forecloses any possibility of politicization. By privatizing these problems, treating them as if they were only caused by chemical imbalances in the individual's neurology and or their family background, any question of social systemic causation is ruled out. Right, so this is what I was talking about before about, you know, if you say that it's the fault of the individual, then it's not the fault of society or anything greater than the individual. It's just a biological thing, right? Do you do you know anybody with dyslexia? Uh I I do, I think. I mean, yes, I have some form of it. It's called like Asperger's syndrome or something, but yeah. Okay. Uh because I've I've seen a lot of people throughout my life uh label themselves as as dyslexic and be labeled medically as dyslexic and it is no exaggeration that being a teenage in late capitalist britain is now close to being reclassified as a sickness mm -hmm. because you know you know my background i never went to school i i was a rebel i didn't want to be there i just escape i just leave that motherfucking place whenever i wanted um but like and then the schools were telling me, oh, you're depressed. And then I was like, motherfucker, I'm depressed. I'm clear-headed, motherfucker. Get me out of that, bitch. Um, but, like, a lot of other people who would, like, act out or, like, not be so submissive. And instead of just leaving, they just kind of just fucking play about or, you know, entertain themselves within the school. And this would be labeled as, like, ADHD or dyslexic and... And like, um, it, you know, it really breaks me heart when I see people who are just genuinely, you know, pretty intelligent, pretty, very socially intelligent, uh, you know, streetwise, switched on, you, you know, extremely funny, fun to be about. And then they, they get labeled as like having ADHD and like in their mind, yeah, they genuinely believe that there's something wrong with their brains and shit and, and like if it's oh my god look it, it angers me because these are people who walking about and they've they've got like they've got that 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 burning spirit in them that's from humans and that were not meant to be locked up into these fucking cages called schools for most of the day education doesn't work for everybody you know we should have different kinds of ways of educating different kinds of people but instead people are being labeled as having adhd people are put into different classes they're ostracized for not being submissive like yeah just being yeah. submissive in school sitting down on chairs again you, you see that thing like years and years ago where you'd share on facebook when people actually use facebook and it was like um you know, you're taught to sit down and shut up for like the first fucking 20 years of your life. And then, oh no, you're taught to like, to stand up and talk by yourself for like the first like fucking eight years of your life. And then for the rest of your life, you're taught to like sit down and shut up. And that's essentially what it is. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's bullshit that so many people are being labelled with ADHD and dyslexia. I do think it's 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 a scam. It's it's there to just take the power away from people, is to just ostracise them, to label them as, as like even a lower class than what they are already. Um, it's 
you, you know, um, it's it's fucking disgusting, Ryan. Um, I don't know what else I've got to say on it other than it's disgusting. It breaks me heart when people are out there. If you're listening now and you're one of those who've been labelled with ADHD because because you you didn't sit down and shut up all your life, then you know my heart goes out to you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're an intelligent, beautiful human being, and you've got as much potential as everybody else, or even more so because you're not as docile and submissive as others. Yeah, I mean, I think both things are true, right? Like, there is such a thing as ADD, and some people do have that, right? But what's important here is not the the existence of the condition itself, it's the use of the system, the use of the illness within a capitalist system, right? So I think it's real, but that's a completely different question as to how schools and educational institutions use it to diagnose someone who won't obey as being that, right? So both things can be true. So it's definitely true that a school is a is a control system, it's a control structure. You can only exist within very uh, tightly controlled lines. And if you exist outside of them or you stray outside of them, you will be, you know, diagnosed as having one thing or another. But those things are real. It's just that those people are using that when it might not necessarily apply. You might not actually have that. They just have to have some kind of justification for you being the way you are and not fitting within their tightly controlled lines. Yeah, rather than the system being a problem because it, sure. it doesn't accommodate for everybody who is different. So, okay, so I'll concede that it is real, um, but... It's just that not everyone that is told they have it has it. Yeah, and I also think that with many health problems that emerge, it's because we're just um we, we don't eat enough nutrients and good nutritional food so that could always be a factor in you know the, the health and mental health of people but yeah anyway, and it is used as an ideological weapon for sure yep uh, so Fisher goes on to say, to talk about how many of the teenage students he encountered seemed to be in a state of what he called depressive hedonia um, so depression is usually characterized by a state of anhedonia, which is like the inability to be happy at any time. But the condition that Fisher refers to here is not constituted by an inability to get pleasure so much as as by an inability to do anything else except pursue pleasure. Right. So there's the um, sense that something's missing, but no appreciation that this mysterious missing enjoyment can only be assessed accessed beyond the pleasure principle right so this is a whole fomo thing fear of missing out it's the thing that's amplified by social media because you can go on and see oh look becky was at a party and it was great and everyone was there and they're obviously having the time of their lives right it's it's um we can easily get into a conversation here about um oh god what's it called uh the the culture industry right the idea that you're that being is now replaced with having so the idea here is that Capital has become so prolific within society that it's been replaced by images and pictures. It doesn't matter if you're actually happy so long as you take pictures of you being happy and posting them online. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's about, it's literally fronting, right? It's about being instead of having. It's about having instead of being. It doesn't matter if you actually are happy. It matters that you put up on all your social medias that you are happy. you don't even want me to go off on social media will be here all day yeah i hate it honestly not because there's something inherently wrong with it but because um a system like that within capitalism only exists to proliferate the ego and it also is you know a giant um data uh, suction machine for capitalism and also surveillance and advertising they sell your thoughts back to you 
They use your thoughts to know what you're thinking, what you like. They sell it to advertisers. They track you with it, all that jazz, right? So there's nothing inherently bad with it. It's just that, you know, within this system, again, terrible. And everybody's kids are being raised by and nobody bats a fucking eyelid. Yeah, sure, that too. Um, so Deleuze within this chapter is actually right to argue that Kafka is the prophet of distributed cyber phonetic power that is typical of control societies. So I want to talk here about one of Kafka's book called The Trial. Have you heard of The Trial or read The Trial? No, no. Okay, everyone should do that, right? So The Trial is amazing and it's a giant book about bureaucracy. So the whole book starts with a guy, he wakes up, he's in his bed, and there's two police officers over his bed and he's arrested, right? He's being arrested. He doesn't know why. He didn't do anything, he's just being arrested. And the whole book is about his journey through giant bureaucracies, but he doesn't know why. He's just being passed from pillar to post, go and see these people, go there, go do this, and he has no idea why the entire time, right? The whole book is just about an entire institution of bureaucracy that he's funneled through, but he, you don't know why. He doesn't know why, he doesn't know what he did, he, he's never even told what he's arrested for or anything. He's just fed through this entire bureaucratic system being passed from pillar to post. Honestly, it's incredible. Go read the book, it's actually awesome. I might have to just to to be what happens to him in the end. Yeah, for sure. It's actually really good. I love the book. It, it's great. Kafka's uh, awesome. He's, he's incredible. Um, Fisher continues by saying that education is a lifelong process. Okay, so training that persists for as long as your working life continues. You take work home with you. You work from home. You home from work. So a consequence of this is actually this indefinite mode of power power is the external surveillance is succeeded by internal policing, right? Control only works if you're complicit with it. This again is Gramsci. Um, the idea of, you know, um, consent to the rules mixed with the loose and control societies, right? Um, consent to be ruled, yeah. Yeah, extremely important that people understand this consent to be ruled. And yeah, this is again why I, I love to draw comparisons to Gramsci and Mark Fisher. There's so much that you could tie in together when it comes to like the culture and you know the spectacle of society, you know all of these things. But I think because Mark Fisher is British, um, he draws a lot out of pop culture that we all understand. Whereas Gramsci is a bit more uh, abstract because it's from a, an earlier time. It's from another culture. Um, so I really. I mean, I've got just as much love for both Gramsci and Mark Fisher. Yeah, definitely. I wish we could do um, the trial. I I don't know how long the book is, um, but it's it's a it's just such a great book. Um, yeah, we should for sure. It's really good. Uh, and again, um, just chop. Sure. <sighs> Where is it? There it goes. Um, education being a lifelong process i really wish it was in the social sense where we could just continue to educate ourselves and better ourselves and become experts in multiple fields whereas over here everybody is split up because of how capitalism privatizes everything people only become experts or masters or phds in pretty much one specific subject all the time so you become a specialist in that but in an ideal world i think everybody would be specialist in a variety of subjects and you know that doesn't benefit capitalism takes more resources and you know it just it's not a capitalist thing for people to actually pursue what they want to do in life 
Like the idea that you can only yeah. be educated in this one sector instead of that, like a holistic understanding of you know systems theory or the way in which things exactly, are interconnected. That's like exactly atomizes, the way yeah, it's it like atomizes education into these sort of singular blocks instead of being like a holistic thing that everyone should understand from a sort of functional point of view. It becomes this sort of um, pedantic fact checking of individual sound bites, right? Yeah. Which is um, how you get Ben Shapiro types. Precisely that. What's more is when it comes to the consent to be ruled, it does come down to the people eventually policing themselves. So that would be like reactionaries, you know, you're talking about climate change and suddenly they're like, oh no, Elon, Elon Musk is going to save the world and that. And that's really, you know, all just being outright abusive to you for proposing a different economic societal model. That's when the people themselves are be, being reactionary. They're doing the job of the bourgeoisie, the job of the state for them with no material benefit for the reactionary anyway. So it's just like that's really peak capitalist realism is, is actually a reactionary. <laughs> So Fisher goes on to say that the system by which the college or university is funded means that it literally cannot afford to exclude students even if it wanted to. Resources are allocated to colleges or universities on the basis of how successfully they meet targets on achievements, exam results, attention, uh, attendance and retention of students. So I actually saw this firsthand when I was at university. Um, there would be people who wouldn't get the passing grade to advance to the next year but the university would do everything possible to make sure that you did so that they would get paid right because it's nine grand a year so for every student so they want to retain as many students as possible so there's a financial incentive in that in them doing that so even if you don't get the grade um to get to the next year they don't want you to drop out because they get paid for every student that attends. So they start bending rules and doing this and that and come back after this class. And maybe we can see if we can just bump the grade a little bit if you, and that's how, and that's just, you know, that's what happens when you have a, a, a financial incentive. It's the exact same as the army. If you joined the army, you failed your basic yeah. training. They wouldn't send you home. I mean, you could stay there for months and months and just going to keep letting you train again. We're going to keep letting you have another go because They'd rather you just train for six months extra um, to pass out so that obviously you're just another body on the field and it's the exact same as work. You go to university, you become a worker for some businessman, some capitalist, and you're just, again, just another, uh, another fucking sheep, aren't you? Instead of going to war, you're commanded by... You know, your supervisors and their supervisors, they're now your officers. It's the exact same. And I mean, in the terms of um, universities, they were, you know, the, the uh, tuition fee was introduced fairly recently. And that's just another example of how, you know, everything in society must exist to turn a profit, right? The idea that you can have such a thing as a free education um, is ridiculous and can't exist. And everything has to exist for a profit, which means, you know, you have to pay to go. Uh, so that's just another example of like the neoliberalization of everything within society, all institutions, including education. Yeah, so basically just money rules everything. What's that cream? Cash rules everything around me. Cream, so get the money, dollar dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> so um Yes, Fisher goes on and says, ask students to read more than a couple of sentences and many 
and these are A-level students, mind you, will protest that they can't do it. They most frequently, the most frequent complaint teachers here is that it's boring, but it's not so much the content of the written material that's at issue here, it's the act of reading itself that's deemed to be boring. What we are facing here is not just time-honored teenage torpor, but a mismatch between a post-literate new flesh that's too wired to concentrate, and the confining concentrational logics of decaying disciplinary systems. To be bored simply means to be removed from the communicative sensation stimulus matrix of texting, YouTube, fast food. It means that to be denied for a moment the constant flow of sugary gratification on demand. Some students want Nietzsche in the same way they want a hamburger. They fail to grasp, and the logic of the consumer system encourages this misapprehension, that the indigestibility is the difficulty. That the indigestibility, the difficulty itself, is Nietzsche. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely. So he's just talking about, you know, the, 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 the trappings of modern society here. And his thing on ADD is where this comes from, right? He, he says that the idea here is that um, everything has to be go all the time, right? The idea that you cannot simply exist without being plugged into the sort of YouTube, fast food, matrix of testing, everything on demand, bite-sized, you know, microwave society where everything comes in tiny little packages, everything is dumbed down, shrinked down, chopped down, cut into tiny little atoms for as fast a digestion, as fast a digestion as possible. Microwave society, fucking <laughs> hell. Yeah, no, um, boss paragraph there talking about teenage topor they don't want to uh what is it it's not the act of reading itself that seems to be boring it's it is the act of reading itself. oh it is the act of reading itself that's deemed to be boring and not the material right so i mean i'm sure there's there's many comrades out there who just have not stuck their head in theory because fucking hell it's a lot to read and yeah i mean i'm probably like haven't read sure. since school yeah. yeah, I mean, even when reading the book Capitalist Realism to do this series, I was bored with it. I'd get like a page in and I'd be like, oh, god damn. And then I'd find myself distracted. I'm like looking at the floor or whatever, like looking around the walls. And I'm like, no, wait, what am I doing right here? Especially when reading this paragraph on how I'm literally doing that right now while I'm reading <laughs> this paragraph. Like, But it, but it is, though, and that, that's what amazes sure. me. Obviously, that's why. You know, academics are so fucking clever because they can just sit, they can sit there as happy as laddie, just read books all day long. But obviously, we come from a different era. Um, you know, <laughs> like these grew up with chalkboards, we grew up with projectors and PowerPoints in school. So, you know, um, but again, this also benefits the capitalist society more broadly, doesn't it? Because if people aren't really interested in reading and books then they're limited to the information that they can get and then thus that's going to be replaced by facebook posts you know um right fake news and shit like that so you know this is another reason why we're doing this because it says people well we hope that people go away and read this book definitely do because you know we try and bring some parts out of it and comment on it but you never really you're gonna pick up and process the information as you would if you read it so we yeah completely guilty as charged you know i sure. haven't read you know many books or theory as much as i should but you know yeah i mean i'm just a huge look at the I'm just a huge proponent of reading generally and i don't do it anywhere near as much as i should but like i have read 
an okay amount. Like, I know all this theory and stuff. And I've even read some of the authors in here, like Kafka, I've read it. Even Nietzsche. Like, Nietzsche's the best writer I've ever read. Like, if you want a writer who writes unlike anyone else, you should read Nietzsche, for sure. You don't even have to agree with everything he says or everything he writes about. But he is an insane writer. Like, he's easily my favorite writer. Like, the way he writes is honestly incredible. I think... The one I read was um, Zarathustra. That's such a great book. Like, even reading that book had me believing in free will for just a little bit. Just <laughs> as long, just, um, yeah, just as long as I was reading it. And then I put it down and I was like, nah. But when reading it, I'm like, oh, damn, he really takes you on a journey. Like, he's like, I'm like, oh, I'm into this. Like, the way he writes is really convincing and it's great. And it makes you, you know, really feel like, oh, wow, I can do anything. And then you close the book and you're like, oh, wait, that's ridiculous. But... <laughs> That's me. I mean, you might really agree with Nietzsche, and, but he, he does write incredibly. Like, he can definitely take you on a journey. And writing is not the same as, like, watching a video on something, right? Uh, reading, sorry. When you're reading, you're, like, following the author's... I don't know. It's like it's like a whole... Yeah, it's like... It's just different. It's different. Reading a book is definitely different than, like, read, watching a video on the book, for sure. Yeah, because... Uh, uh there is that other side. There is the side that once you get stuck into a book, um, and, and a writer, you know, is interesting, funny. Mark Fisher here is extremely like poetic and explicit in in a lot of senses. Um, he he paints really interesting pictures in, in your mind, whilst also you know showing you the the truth as well. I think he's he's a really inspiring writer to tell you the truth. I'd love to have his writing style. And yeah, there, there is that time where it's it's not like you know, watching a TV series or a documentary, but there are many times in which, you know, I've, I've come back in with a coffee or something and, like, I've sat down and, like, looked at the telly or looked at my PC and there's nothing on the screen. And I'm like, oh, fucking hell, yeah, I was reading. And it's like, because you, you do get so immersed that um, sometimes you forget that you're reading and, and that's, you know, down to the writer. Yeah, for sure. Zarathustra, go read that if anyone wants to read any Nietzsche. Honestly, it's great. And The Trial by Kafka. Great books. So, hopping back into the text, Fisher then gives us an illustration of this. Um, what's the term he used right here? Communicative Sensation Stimulus Matrix. So he challenged one of his students one day about why he was always wearing headphones in class. The student replied that it didn't matter because he wasn't actually playing any music. In another lesson, he was playing music at a very low volume through his headphones without actually wearing them. When Fisher asked him to turn it off, he replied that he couldn't even hear it. So then why wear the headphones without playing music? Or play music without wearing the headphones? Because the presence of the phones on the ears or the knowledge that the music is playing, even if he couldn't hear it, was a reassurance that the Matrix is still there within reach. The consequence of being hooked into the Entertainment Matrix is twitchy, agitated, interpassivity, and an inability to concentrate or focus. Yeah, so this, what this reminds me of is, again, in, in an episode with Brett, where we're talking where I mentioned how like people's consciousness are literally performing as what the bourgeoisie expect and want. So they're listening to this music, the on the headphones, the or, or on the fucking iPhone or something. They're listening to this music, and it's hard for them to detach themselves with that and focus on the education at hand when Mark Fisher himself is actually educating them. And this it really does show you the, 
the capitalist mode of production when it comes to education. But it, I think that if you were to con contrast that with a socialist society, then you would see the benefits where the same dependency or the same personal attachment to the music in which the student is listening to in his headphones in a class being taught by Mark Fisher, that same dependency on the music would be flipped. So the education becomes as, as valuable to the individual as the music down the headphone and, and their own personality would not be defined by a music track by some capitalist, it would be more defined by their ability to educate themselves and be a better productive member in society. Do, do you know what I'm saying? For sure. And I think this also ties in with his like, idea of ADD, right? The idea that it's an ideological position, right? The idea that you constantly have to be hooked in to bounce from this thing to that thing, to fast food, to music, to always having this thing within reach. I think this is what he's saying, it ties in with his idea of ADD, right? That this is a um, an ideological position rather than a sort of inherent biological one. Yeah, and obviously as, as polls, we're limited to looking at it ideologically or culturally, whereas this is why, again, I really want to get some neuroscientists onto the show because these companies who are producing the headphones who are producing the music who are producing the software to play the music they use science to study how our brain works and that that they want us to be dependent on these products and, and on the music because it apparently expresses ourselves so they're using the the knowledge of like neuroscience our brain chemistry and yet we're like completely absent to how that's being abused so yeah, it's just something for the future, Dad. That's why we're going to do some neuroscience in the future. Yeah, we can also do, like, there are, um, there are also videos and books about Burns. I think his name's Burns Day. He was, like, um, the, the nephew of Freud. But he was a huge propagandist. He wrote books on propaganda. I have them, I think one's even called Propaganda. And he did propaganda for the US government. And he got an entire generation of women to take up smoking just with this campaign. Um, he called them freedom torches or something. And um, he made women smoking like a, like a, a an issue of um, female empowerment and female freedom. Um, and he got an entire generation of women to start smoking, essentially. And he wrote books on like how to propagandize people, how to do it correctly, how the brain works, and um, how to be good at propaganda, all that. He wrote books on it. He's the devil. Uh, for sure, what? yeah. I mean, he wrote... Oh, hold on, let me... What let was me... his name? Let me just... Um... Let me Let me do a Google... But he's the nephew of um, Freud here, and he worked for the public... Oh, no, hang on. Uh, why Why is he no nephew of Freud? Edward Bernays. On our side? Edward Bernays was his name. Why are there no F Edward Bernays that are on our side? I have no idea. But yeah, he was, he's a huge, he wrote books on propaganda. Um, well, I think one's called Propaganda. I have it. I, I downloaded it. I've not really read it yet. But um, it basically just talks about, yeah, like how he did it, how he propagandized all these people. Yeah, here we go. He did a, a public relations campaign that equated smoking in public with female emancipation. Um, 
and he got you know an, an entire generation of um women to to start smoking yeah that's not the first time that fucking excuse for female emancipation's being used fucking hell just tap me on the back but yeah you can you can talk oh, about things good. like him forever like people in this space um, have, have have done a lot like propaganda is, is huge in these areas uh fisher goes on to say what we in the classroom are now facing is a generation born into an ahistorical anti-mnemonic blip culture a generation that is to say for whose time has always come ready made into digital micro slices right so i found this um you can see it even when you make youtube videos like the youtube videos that do best are short they're quick they have many cut transitions and lights and sounds right everything's got to be quick short sharp and instantly gratify um i have videos that are hours long this video is hours long and they're not hugely successful like the amount of people that i i love watching videos like that i love podcasts i will i will listen to like a three-hour podcast i love doing stuff like that but apparently the, the 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 culture and generation at large just hate that and you can see it in like youtube statistics if you have a video that's like even 20 minutes long the amount of people that stay past the three minute mark is just after three minutes it goes from like 70 percent to like 20 percent of people that still watch the video um it's insane people just don't have the appetite for it they don't have the attention spans for it if something can't be you know chopped up into a bite-sized chunk and spoon fed to them instantaneously they're just not up for it hmm yeah, uh, I mean, again, just draw a contrast with Reddit. I mean, look at even yeah. the left-wing subs. It's like, that That should be, like, extracts of, like, the most potent paragraphs within theory, but instead it's just some shitty meme, and that's all fucking people do online. Yeah, I mean, things like Reddit, there's a whole different conversation to be had there, right? Because the idea is that it doesn't actually matter if any given thing doesn't satisfy you, because the next one is only a... a a, a thumb swipe away right so nothing becomes all that engaging there's always a next thing yeah that, that's interesting yeah yeah so fisher then goes on to compare this to um william gibson's book called necromancer which i've not read um he talks about the main character's amphetamine habit um being a metaphor for a far more abstract speed if then something like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a pathology then fisher calls it a pathology of late capitalism it's a consequence of being wired into the entertainment control circuits of a hypermediated consumer culture similarly what is called dyslexia may, in many cases, amount to a post-lexia. Teenagers process capital's image-dense data very effectively without, without any need to read slogan recognition. is sufficient to navigate the net mobile magazine information plane. Writing has never been capitalism's thing. Capitalism is profoundly illiterate, Deleuze um, and Guattari argue in Anti-Oedipus. Yeah, so that's essentially what I was saying before about how he was going to tie um, ADHD back into this culture and society and it being a, a, a pathology. What the hell is a pathology? Uh, a pathology is basically, so a, a pathogen is something that causes negative um, thing in the body. So a pathogen to the body is like bacteria or a virus or basically anything that causes disease. So a pathology is 
just basically like a disease or an illness, right? It's a... Um, like a pathogen? It's something caused by a, patholo- a, a pathogen, all right? Hmm. So that's just Fisher being descriptive against, like, um, uh, to, to describe as some kind of virus. Yeah, I mean, pathology is the study of disease, right? So he's essentially saying that, you know, this ADHD or whatever he wants, or, or, or um, dyslexia, he says that's a, a pathology of capitalism. It's a disease of capitalism. Yeah, I would agree. He goes on to say, teachers are now put under intolerable pressure to mediate between the post-literate subjectivity of the late capitalist consumer and the demands of the disciplinary regime to pass examinations, etc. This is one way in which education, far from being in some ivory tower safely inured from the real world, is the engine of the reproduction of social reality. Directly confronting the inconsistencies of the capitalist social field, teachers are caught between being facilitator, entertainers, and disciplinarian authoritarians. Right, so teachers have to play these multiple roles because of their ideological position within society. So they have to also be facilitators, educators, entertainers. They also have to be, you know, disciplinarians. They have to also be authoritarian. Um, And if you're in America, it's worse. They want you to be, you know, you have to... You know, Trump floated that idea of them all carrying guns. So now you have to be a teacher and a soldier and a counselor and a, right? They want you to do everything and be everything all the time. And that's the idea of um, why um, Fisher thought that education was the, the breeding ground for sort of neoliberal um, late capitalist ideology. Very interesting. Well said. Yes, yes, yes. So he goes on to explain this idea. He says, um, teachers want to help students to pass the exams. They want them to be authority figures and tell them what to do. Teachers being interpolated by students as authority figures exacerbates the boredom problem, since isn't anything that comes from the place of authority a priori boring. With families buckling under the pressure of a capitalism, which requires both parents to work, Teachers are now increasingly required to act as surrogate parents, instilling the most basic behavioural protocols in students and providing pastoral and emotional support for teenagers who are in some cases only minimally socialised. Jalou says that control societies are based on debt rather than enclosure, but there is a way in which the current education system both indebts and encloses students. Pay for your own exploitation, the logic exists. Get into debt so that you can get the same job you could have walked into if you'd left at school at 16. Yeah, so what that's saying to me is obviously where it talks about, you know, education and society, we were taught by each other, the ins and outs of the world, but then obviously when we switched over from feudalism, the state becomes everything, it becomes a mother's, a parents, it becomes a teacher's, it becomes, you know, a, a disciplinary flipping source, it becomes everything. and. And, you know, that that's basically one way of looking at it, I think. Yeah, it's the idea that, you know, under capitalism, everything exists to function and proliferate capitalism, right? So now that both parents have to work, you know, parent, parent-child time is diminished. So now they spend most of their time in school. So now they have to, you know, teachers now have to play that kind of quasi-parental role as well as being teachers and disciplinarians and you know everything else that's exactly it everybody's in work you can't raise your kids so your kids are raised by the state 
Sure. The next thing he, the next thing Fisher talks about in here is, well, he says the so-called quote liberal communists such as George Soros and Bill Gates, who combine rapacious pursuit of profit with the rhetoric of ecological concern and social responsibility, alongside their social alongside their social concern, liberal communists believe that their that believe that work practices should be post-modernized, in line with their concept of, quote, being smart. As Zizek explains, being smart means being dynamic and nomadic, and against centralized bureaucracy, believing in dialogue and cooperation as against central authority, in flexibility as against routine culture and knowledge, as against industrial production, in spontaneous interaction, and autopoiesis as against fixed hierarchy. Huh. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure if he's using the term liberal communist as like a joke or seriously. Um, Zizek, as I believe I've mentioned before, depending on where or where you listen to him, he's kind of all over the place. Um, so here he talks about being smart is defined as being dynamic and nomadic and against um, centralized bureaucracy. Okay, sure. I mean, that, that ties in with the idea earlier about, you know, capitalists believing that centralized bureaucracy is only a thing of competing systems. And you have to believe that dialogue and cooperation exists against central authority and inflexibility against routine culture and knowledge. So it's a strange paragraph, honestly. Yeah, but Fisher really seems to like Zizek, doesn't he? He's, yeah. He likes a few good other writers as well, because he's always um, drawn from other people's work. So he's obviously read a few books himself, hasn't he? Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Um, oh yeah, I, I don't know what he means by liberal communists. I, my my brain refuses to let that sink in as as a legitimate thing in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, clearly he's smart enough to know that that's not a real thing. So I'm sure it must be some kind of like, like you thought before when he was talking about Stalinism that he like. <laughs> yeah, it, it must be something like that. I'm just trying to find it in the book to see. He's saying the so-called liberal communists. So he's saying no, the yeah, fools who call themselves liberal communists. But yeah, I mean, obviously that's a, a contradictory term. You cannot, you know, you can't be both, obviously. So I'm sure everyone knows that. Um, resistance to the new is not a cause that the left can or should rally around. Capital thought very carefully about how to break labour, yet there has still not been enough thought about what tactics will work against capital in conditions of post-Fordism. So, because we're going to talk about Fordism and post-Fordism here, I'm just going to go ahead and define both terms for people, essentially, just in case anyone listening doesn't actually know what those are. So Fordism uh, denotes the modern economic and social systems of mass production and consumption. So it's obviously named after Henry Ford and is employed in social, economic and management theory concerning consumption, production and working conditions that are, and other associated concepts, particularly particularly regarding the 20th century. So Fordism, just think of sort of the, the 20th century production line way of working, right? You've got production lines, mass, mass production of the same product over and over again for mass consumption, eight hour workdays, clock in, clock out, and you actually make enough money to be able to afford things. So that's, that's contrasted with post-Fordism, which is the concept that 
current economies are based on service industries, information technologies, and other products designed and intended for specific needs rather than for mass production or producing large numbers of the same product, right? So it's the so-called gig economy. It's the sort of breakdown of um, the mass-produced, centralized um, economic system, and it becomes this sort of everything is tailor-made, no one gets paid enough to really do anything. That's essentially what he's talking about here when they say post-Fordism. So hopping back into the text here, it says, Today we see liberal capitalism and its political system, which is parliamentarianism, as the only natural and acceptable solutions. So Harvey, I think this is, I'm not entirely sure who he's talking about here. It might be David Harvey. Um, it might not be. It might be someone else entirely. But it's, oh, it is David Harvey. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So Harvey argues that neoliberalization is best conceived of as a political project to re-establish the conditions for capital accumulation and to restore the power of economic elites. So Harvey demonstrated that in an era popularly described as post-political, class war has of course continued to be fought, but only by one side, the wealth. After the implementation of neoliberal policies in the late 70s, as Harvey showed, neoliberals were more Leninists than the Leninists, uh, using think tanks as the intellectual vanguard to create the ideological climate in which capitalist realism could flourish. So this idea here is an idea that I've always been talking about forever. Like, I always tell people that the best Marxists in the country are the bourgeois, right? Because they understand class war, they understand class consciousness, they have it. Um, they've been waging it forever. So the, the people who understand and implement Marxist, Marxism the best are the bourgeois, no doubt. Yeah, most definitely. So the neoliberals are more Leninist than the Leninists using think tanks as an intellectual vanguard to create the ideological climate in which capitalist realism can flourish. This is where I'm constantly reiterating about how they hold all the and the knowledge and the power and the propaganda and they're using it against us and we as ourselves can't even create a vanguard on Twitter to start a hashtag trend that's going to show up on the Twitter website to millions and millions of people all around the world. We can't even manage to do a hashtag trend, never mind start a vanguard party. And as you said, the bourgeoisie are absolutely switched on. They organise all the time against us. They push propaganda out all the time against us and instead we're just debating with ourselves over fucking Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union and shit and we need to be moving past this, we need to just stop like we, we just need to step it up, like seriously step it up we need to stop being so modest and then just say okay let's start a fucking internet virtual vanguard party and then we all just comment on the same shit and we all just like each other's posts and we all just retweet until it starts trending on a website that's going to have hundreds of millions of views because this is what they do against us all the time. They start hashtag Twitter trends and that. And it's probably about seven people in a room who's been hired by some politician to do it. And we can't... We have to counter this cultural hegemony wherever it exists. We need to counter it all over Reddit. That's why you just need to come to late stage imperialism because the moderators of all the other subs are not going to fucking do it if anything. They just turn people away from communism and socialism and the concept of late stage capitalism because they just cringe. They moderate poorly. They ban people all the time, comrades. 
all, all the time they, they ban proles who don't know what communism is rather than just saying, okay, you don't know what it is, I'm going to give you a flare tag so people know that you're a liberal and then engage with you differently. And I've seen massive successes in my lifetime. I've radicalised all kinds of people through late-stage imperialism as a moderator when it comes down to uh, appeal and bans when it comes down to just general conversation and even sending private messages to reach the person. This is what they're doing all the time. And instead, there's so many Marxists out there who are so individual. There's so many comrades out there who are too focused on their education. You know, work's not important. School's not important. Nothing's more important than stopping the fascism because fascism will stop us all. I go to work. Every motherfucker knows what I am. Everybody knows I'm a communist. And if anybody's new to the store, they find out I'm a communist dead fast. I'm talking managers. I'm talking store managers. I'm talking section leaders. They all know if there's the slightest hint of any one of my workers being exploited i'll tell them you're exploiting them i'll, I'll tell them about slave rage and slave labor and modern slavery like people have to start standing up for themselves they have to stop letting these neoliberals absolutely dominate us intellectually culturally and politically it takes bravery and you know people need to just you know focus less on talking in their fucking Discord servers or their subreddits or just with, with their own little clicks and we need to start organising together and all these Discord servers come together and mobilise through, you know, starting Twitter trends and, you know, actually upvoting shit on Reddit in a subreddit that's not cringe and, you know, just there's so many different ways to take this but, again, it's just like... You know, these neoliberals are organised a lot more than us. We need to really, really step it up. And obviously, I'm just talking about virtual shit because I'm doing a podcast now. But, you know, if any of you want to meet up and we'll fucking start organising in real life, let me know. I'm in Liverpool, ready, all day. So, um, yeah, that, that was my two cents on that. It's also way more organised online than people think. Do you know? Um, do you know what the 77th Brigade is? negative all right cool i just sent you a link go ahead and click that so the 77th brigade is literally a unit in the uk army which is designated to pumping out propaganda online so they're like a they're like a cyber division of the uk army that's whole purpose is to it even says on there what we do audience actor and adversary analysis we disseminate media we collect media content we evaluate the information environment right so they're a propaganda outfit for the u uh, for the uk army obviously that's what they do they're out here they're on the internet they're doing you know propaganda campaigns for the government for themselves for you know our allies international and other ways to um propagate yeah. imperialism that's it. No, I, I am on to who they are. And if anyone wants to know, they're in Newbury, Hermitage. So if you, you know, if you have got some kind of um, radical death wish, go out there. Kings, you don't wake up, then somebody might believe it, and you might, you know, end up in a, what they call a revolutionary happy hunting ground. <laughs> Say that. Well, I am a revolutionary. I mean, they, they're not even, they're like uh, an hour, 
just over an hour from me. And to be honest, it, like, even something like that, even if you went and burned it to the ground, it wouldn't do anything, right? Because these things are structural, they're not individual. So you're not gonna, this is the whole thing about, you know, sort of anachronistic propaganda of the deed, the idea that all you need to do is like burn these places down. It's not gonna solve it, it won't fix it, right? You Because, again, it's one of these things where it gets incorporated back into the system and it further, um, survives the system. So, I mean, Lenin talked about this, right? Lenin talked about being against anachronistic violence for the reason that it doesn't actually achieve anything, and it also brings the violence of the state down on people. This is why he was... Go and read Lenin on it, like, he was very against sort of anarchistic violence because it was unorganized, they wouldn't band together and actually form a party, instead it was this sort of, you know, uh, disorganized violence campaign that actually doesn't solve anything in the larger picture, which is why Lenin was against it. You should go read Lenin on it, honestly. It, it, it's awesome. Okay, so don't burn it down, just break in, steal everything, and then use their <laughs> hardware to do what they do against us. Um, but, <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. Um, if every single one of us went out there to an army barracks and then burnt the fucking place down, they'd lose, because there's more of us than them. But, again, this is where it comes down to organising. Um, people aren't can't even organize that well online never mind in real yeah. life to do real shit they, they'd always win though right because all they need to do is open up another brigade or they'll move it to somewhere else right there is yeah, no I, like I, successful I know, it's like, it's like the whole of the british army can fit inside wembley stadium we've got about eighty thousand people in the british army and there's 64 million people in the in the country so you know we definitely definitely could kill them all and then we're, we're free but you know what i'm saying people are, are feared they've got too much fear they're scared terrified you know they're not going to do it because they'll get killed or they'll go to jail. If I mean, you get killed, then you get killed. You become a martyr. And then, but if you go to jail, then you just organize in jail with prisoners and just step up the fight in jail. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, that that's my thoughts on it. It's class war. We're laying back. We're slowly being murdered through poverty and, and austerity and doing nothing, nothing but talking about it. Yeah, I mean, sure, but I don't, that's definitely not the way to go about it, right? Like, there's such a thing as, you know, tactic and strategy, and the idea that you could, you should, like, run head, like, head on into the machine gun fire, like, that's, that's not smart. Like, it's not gonna achieve anything, you're not gonna win that way, right? You, it's the idea, you should read, like, um, what Ho Chi Minh did and everything, right? Like, in Vietnam, right? He, I think he even wrote books on it, like, never engage the enemy head-on, it's fire and move, it's constant guerrilla tactics, right? The idea that you should, like, face your enemy head-on, like, run directly into them is, is uh, a literal suicide, right? Like, it's, it's never gonna work. And this is also why Lenin was against propaganda of the deed. I, I should probably pull that up. In fact, let's do that. Let's go over that at some point. We'll go over um, Lenin's writings on um, anarchistic, anarchistic violence and propaganda of the deed, and that we'll do that for one of them. Fucking uh, hell, where's the IRA? I just want them back. I, I always wondered, like, where those people are now, because they must still be out. Like, people that never got caught, they're just sort of chilling. They're just out there, like, living whatever normal life they have now. Yeah. Mad. It is very strange. 
Um, so hopping back into the text, Deleuze wondered what new form an anti-control politics might take. So one of the most important questions will look at the ineptitude of the unions tied to the whole of their history of struggle against the disciplines or within the spaces of enclosure. Will they be able to adapt themselves or will they give way to new forms of resistance against the societies of control? Can we already grasp the rough outlines of the coming forms or can we or are we capable of threatening the joys of marketing? What must be discovered is a way out of the motivation demotivization demotivization binary so that disidentification from the control program registers as something other than dejected apathy. One strategy would be to shift the political terrain to move away from the union's traditional focus on pay and onto other forms of discontent specific to post-Fordism. So if we were to just summarize the two chapters, how would it go? I'd say Capitalism and the Real was Mark Fisher really expanding on the first two chapters to you know, just really reiterate and underline how capitalism is seen as the real. And he gives you know, a varied amount of examples on this and we also you know brought out our own experience and you know from what we saw in the past and the present and probably in the future just to reiterate that capitalism in the real which is of course essentially what this whole book was about capitalist realism and the second chapter that we talked on was yeah reflective impotence of mobilization and liberal communism right so this was all about the idea of how the um british youth Basically, the challenges, um, we had the ADD thing, how that's actually a pathology, how it tied in with dyslexia, the need for the sort of like dumbed down, bite-sized microwave society. There was bureaucracy in there as well, right? Yeah. Uh, the trial, of course. Went into post-Fordism, Fordism. For sure. We went over it quite a bit. We, I, I wouldn't even say that we, we went off topic. We just really expanded on much of what was written. Yeah. Um, as well as just cleared up, you know, I, I learned a few things from you there as well in that session. But yeah, appreciate that, Ryan. All good. Um, are, are we good to say a sign offs and then yeah, bugger off? Okay, well, yeah, thank you very much for everybody listening. We really hope that you got something out of this. We really want you to go away, read Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. Let us know what you thought with any feedback. Again, I'm no expert in theory, never claim to be. We're just working through the theory and trying to educate ourselves even more and become hopefully, again, just a little more, a little better at relaying these ideas to the general public, our fellow pros who we have to help get some confidence in themselves. And, you know, that takes education if we're ever going to truly emancipate ourselves and others really take this on board educate your people and then one day hopefully they'll wake up in a revolutionary happy hunting ground which ryan says isn't effective because no, it's not said that, so. it's not even that it's just about it being disorganized right so we really need to read what lenin said on it because it was about it's about having it not tied to a political party, right? Because then it has no end game. You can't actually achieve anything ultimately, right? All you do is it's sort of like hit and run tactics and nothing really changes except the state gets ultimately more violent and it brings the violence of the state down on people. Um, and even people who didn't do anything, right? So like if you 
it they'll because what the police will do is they'll just go to random communities that it came through and they'll just you know they'll they'll ransack you right you know what the police are like they'll just go house to house seeing if people know anything and you're bringing the violence of the state down on people that you know don't know anything about it didn't do anything right and it just contributes to the sort of difficulty of um, innocent people's lives ultimately yeah There's a time and a place you know, for it, it's just not outside a political party uh, it's 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 a tough one uh, again well, okay, let's do that next. We'll do we'll do what Lenin said on it next. I'm fairly sure it's like a really short text as well. I mean, this dialectic of violence could be the necessary catalyst to show people just how disgusting the state is. If it imprison again, this is why if you've got the support of your people in your community, they're gonna be like, "Oh my God, he's actually in jail now because he was a revolutionary." And he loved us. He loved the people. That's all he was about. That's why this theory is important because you're relaying this shit to the people so that the people are on board with you. They don't just see you as a radical. They see you as somebody who loves them. And that, that's what the Black Panther Party was doing. And that's what they always did. You know, Fred Hampton had that support despite, you know, obviously beating policemen up, you know, despite the Black Panthers having firefights with the police. They were able to do that because they could move through their community like fishes. They could turn up at somebody's doorstep if they're being chased and they're going to be let in because they've got the love of the people behind them. And that's why it's important for us to speak out and be communists everywhere 24-7, especially in the community. Everybody has to know you're the revolutionary in the community and that you love them and then you can articulate why but, you know, that's that's needed more than, I think, a political party. I think you need the community on board, a political party. What good is a political party if that party hasn't got the support of the masses? And well, that's it's the, the problem. It's the support of the masses that make the party, right? That's the point. That's what the Black Panther Party did, right? They went door to door, street to street, ultimately gang to gang, right, to to disseminate information to get people to agree and it's those the coming together of all of those people that eventually forms the political party right the vanguard party it's not about just making any political party imaginable it's about educating and informing all of those people that think alike and having those people come together and form that political party that's needed okay so it's yeah, chapter, I've just looked it up. It's chapter four of um, left-wing communism and infantile disorder, uh, where Lenin talks about anarchism and uh, opportunism. Okay, so we'll have to go through that so that I can clear my name up from being having some kind of infantile disorder. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it, it's just... Yeah, we'll, we'll have to go through it, honestly, because there's so much to talk on just this. It's like it's like an hour's of conversation just on this itself, so we'll, we'll go through it. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure and I hope listeners will find that very interesting, you know, us just fucking debating with each other over the methods of bringing out a bloody revolution or even a non-bloody revolution. <laughs> sure. But, boss, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. Are you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Boss, so thank you very much again, Ryan. Thank you to our listeners for listening. Please like, share, follow us on Twitter at Lumpen underscore podcast. Check out Patreon. You're probably already on Patreon. Um, Patreon.com slash Lumpen Podcasts. Subscribe. You get your episodes earlier as soon as they're edited. 
But yeah, that was Capitalist Realism, chapters 3 to 4. The workers and lumping of the world, you know. Peace. Wish I was holding you closer than close every day of your life